Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with another one of our case studies. This time, it's a Manly Warringah special with friend of the show, host of ABC Overnights, Rod Quinn. How are you, Rod? Michael, I'm very excited to be doing this. As you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, what you've been doing and what you've achieved so far. I can't wait to see or to hear what happens at the end of the 1996 season. <laughs> I've got a feeling it'll be a really happy ending. So... Very much looking forward to uh, this season of the show. Oh, wow, I, I I can't believe you do me like that, Rod. I, <laughs> you know, I you you were were nice enough to have uh, me on your show, which which gave me my ABC Radio debut. So uh, I, I was thrilled with that. I was very happy to be able to return the favour and have you on the RLD. But now I'm I'm, I'm stunned that you come out so brazenly. Yeah. Like, <laughs> You'll be shocked in a moment when I do reveal something very uh, special. So anyway, okay. that is all, all ahead right. of us. We'll, we'll get into all of that. Now, we're not going to really touch on much of current day Manly, but uh, in, in the way we're recording this late on uh, Anzac Day night, um, in the wake of a, a stunning Manly victory against the Tigers this afternoon, I, I have to ask the question, are, are Manly actually good? I think they're good if they've got... Tom Trebojevic, you know, if Tommy Turbo is at his best and if DCE is at his best as well, and they both had fantastic games today, then yeah, Manly, I think, I, I hope, I'm crossing my fingers, will finish around about where I thought they might finish, which might be sixth or seventh, and you never know, a win in week one, all of a sudden you're a, a win away from a preliminary final. So I know we're three wins into the season and they've got Penrith next week. But, you know, who knows what happens from here? I, I'm I'm finally a little bit bullish about Manly's prospects this year. I just cannot believe that this is the same team that we saw in the first three weeks when you wondered if there was going to be a win all season. We we penciled in Manly versus the Dogs in July as the, the wooden spoon off. Uh, and, and now suddenly you're, you're looking like a top eight team. So a, a long way to go. Uh, I don't want to jinx you, or maybe I do. Maybe let's uh, let's end the run right here. And <laughs> Don't forget that the teams that beat them, you know, the Roosters, okay, in the first round, that was a big loss. Uh, but they're a very good team. And then they were beaten by a surprise packet, you know, St George, and then beaten by Penrith. So, you know, they were being beaten by a really good side. So maybe we had the wrong end of the stick with Manly this year. Maybe we needed to get them to play some really dud teams first off uh, and see how they went to get them. Because, I mean, the West Tigers were terrible. Like, they were playing as badly as any team I've ever seen this year. And Manly were all over them. I, I was so pleased with the way Manly played today. Yeah. So, a, a long way to go in the season. And we're not going to get too too much into the weeds uh, in this episode because it's, it's not well, really... Can I say one thing about yeah. that, though? Go for and it. That with Manly, 
yes, we've had fantastic results over you know decades and decades. But the thing that we're most proud of is no wooden spoon. Yeah, I know. As soon as family get away from that wooden spoon zone, then I think, yeah, this is going to be a successful season. I don't want to run second last or third last, but even if we run, you know, 10, 11, 12, fantastic. Nowhere near the spoon. I, I was actually, that victory by the Dragons that you mentioned, I actually went to a pub and met, I, I was with a table full of Manly fans. It was me versus about six Manly fans. I left that pub very happy, of course, but on, on the train ride home, I was thinking, this is the year. I, I think they're going to do it. Finally, I don't have to hear that from Manly fans anymore. Well, so but, George Illawarra have never won the spoon either. We should remember that. Yeah, um, yeah. But, you know, with teams like Canterbury and Brisbane, and up until a few weeks ago, North Queensland, I mean, they are really bad. I mean, North Queensland have improved, of course, but Brisbane and, and Canterbury are pretty terrible, and Manly are nowhere near as bad as those two teams. No, and I think that the Tigers have announced themselves as right in that mix as well. <laughs> So. <laughs> well, they're going to be sacking their coach, uh, possibly. So that's what happens if Manly beats you, you sack <laughs> But uh, let, let's get to the crux of why we're here. So our last case study was the Fibros Western Suburbs. So I thought it was only fitting that we jump to the Silver Tails next. And I think knowing your vintage, it's probably in that era that, that you have a lot of fond memories. So I want to start by, you know, getting a sense of, of where it all starts for you as a Manly fan. It starts very early in Manly's great successful era. And here's the stunning news for you, Michael, that for about a game in 1970, I was a St George fan. <laughs> and so 1970, I was very, very young, just starting to know what rugby league was about. And we had a St George stove, as many people did in those days. And we had a St George clock and a St George fridge. And so I thought, well, the only team I can possibly go for is St George. And then they lose the 1970 preliminary final. And all of a sudden, I have to choose a team. I can't choose South, so I choose Manly. Sure, they lose that grand final. But after that, it's all Manly. So I was a St George fan for sort of, one game in the semi-finals of 1970, and then after that, it's all manly. Now, now I don't think this has ever been discussed in a in a rugby league context before, but th- there was an incident in that grand final, wasn't there? Some something some something happened in, to someone's face, I believe. The, the details are very hazy, but I know you never ever hear anyone talk about it. It's like there's this code of silence that's descended that no <laughs> one ever talks about it. I'll tell you something that a lot of people may not know about that grand final is that Manly, who lost, I think it was 24-12, the most number of points scored in a grand final by a team that doesn't score a try. So they scored 12 points, which is all from penalty goals and field goals. Field goals in those days, wow, it was so strange in those days, worth two points. Thank God that's not like that these days. And so 12 points Manly scored and didn't score a try. Mm. And <laughs> I know, <laughs> weird story. But yeah, okay, so you know, it was a stupid thing that John Bucknell did to uh, John Sattler. Did it cost Manly the game? I doubt it. But I think, the, the didn't he become a missionary at some point? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he really had to go and, you know, sort his life out. And um, I don't know that he ever played against John Sattler again. Yeah, I, I can't remember the, the details. We actually, in, in the old incarnation of the show, we, we did a, a, a history segment on that. And, and I, I, all I can remember is uh, Sattler being outraged that John O'Neill would, would sign with Manly, saying they're the bastards that broke my jaw. 
that's all I remember about the aftermath of that. But well, the aftermath of that would have to be he'd have to be angry at John O'Neill, Ray Brannigan, yeah. and then everyone else who left the South. So there was a couple of other blokes who went to, to Manly, and then and I'll get to this. It's something that we definitely will want to talk about later on. Is that everyone walked out of South, and Sats was one of them. I think he went to Queensland. Yeah. Well, I, I guess going to Queensland doesn't really count. I'd, I'd say Sats, Sats is in the clear, but 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 the rest of them, yeah, you, you're very right. And this is the the start of a pattern that uh, you know is is going to be very significant when we talk about everything that happened with Manly through the '70s, and then everything that happened with Manly's boss Ken Arthurson uh, in the '80s and beyond. So th- this is really the the start of a change in the game. And then we get to that, you know, legendary period for Manly in the seventies, four premierships and, and they're on their way. So I want to, you know, maybe start with your memories of, of that great team. And and I'm particularly interested to hear some of your thoughts on Bob Fulton as a player. Well, Fulton, of course, without Fulton, Manly would not exist as the club we know today. He came to them in, what, 66 or so. Um, there's that famous story that he and Peter Peters are sitting on the roof of the grandstand watching the 65 grand final, promising that they would be there. You know, three years later, he is playing for Manly in a grand final. Um, I think he's captain coach of, of the Sydney team, the City team at some point as well, very early on in the 1960s. And... Without Fulton, Manly are not that team. Yeah, Arco, obviously, very, very important in in signing players. But Fulton was the talisman. He was that man who became, well, one of the greatest players of all time. We know he was one of the first four immortals. And without Bozo, Manly just would not be the dominant force in the 1970s. You know, they make the 68 grand final. They make the 1970 grand final. They finally break through in 1972. That's the first grand final I remember watching on TV. And there's a very strange thing that people who hate Manly might think, hmm, that explains a lot. But I remember, and this is so clear, even though I was just a kid, I was, a, you know, a, in primary school, watching the, the preamble to the 1972 grand final uh, on the ABC, and they're interviewing players and, and people and celebrities as they arrive at the ground, who do you think will win? And one of the people they interviewed was Keith Page, the referee. And they say, well, who do you think will win? He said, I think Manly will win. (laughs) You're the referee. Even when I was a kid, I thought, no, hang on. (laughs) That does not add up. Now, I'm sure he sort of qualified it by saying, oh, you know, if if both teams play to their best, you know, Manly will win. And fair enough, Manly were undefeated. I think going into the last 15 or so games of that season, um, they did not lose a match from May on in 1972. So, I mean, they were without doubt the dominant team. And you look at the the players, obviously with John O'Neill coming across. um, But, you know, that back line was was sensational with Graham Eady and Ray Brannick and Ken Irvine had come across from North because he wanted to win a premiership. Uh, Max Brown had come from Canterbury as well, and he scored a lot of tries. Ian Martin, one of my favourite players, he was the 5'8". Dennis Ward was the 5'8 in 72, and then John Mays in 1973. You had uh, Terry Randall was there in the forwards. I mean, it was just... It was the classic Manly lineup, which is a mix of superstars who, you know, were playing for Australia... Or these journeymen who never put in a bad game and always did their best, and, and they 
you know, Alan Thompson was another one, both Alan Thompson, Alan Thompson, the 5'8 later, and Alan Thompson, the second rower as well. They always did their best, and Manly got the best out of them that maybe they didn't get at other clubs. So I remember the 72 grand final very well with Manly beating East. I know there's, you know, people talk about various things that happened in that game. There was maybe a forward pass, but, yeah, Manly were easily the better side, and they should have won it. 73, everyone talks about the 73 grand final as well. But to me, I mean, it's all on YouTube, but I really urge people to, to watch it. It's the commentary of Alan Marks. When Fulton scores that first try in 73, and we know that they only scored two tries and scored both of them. One was a spectacular one in the corner to wrap up the game in the second half. But that first one in the first half, where you can see he is watching what is going on the Cronulla defence is kind of relaxed and then Fred Jones takes the ball from dummy half and then just turns and there's a bit of a flick pass and Fulton accelerates from a standing start, goes through the Cronulla defence and runs around and scores and Alan Marks is you know, doing the commentary for the ABC and just the way he picks up on what's happening, he goes, Fulton, Fulton, the brilliant Fulton, knowing that only Fulton could have scored that try and that is what made Fulton, you know, the great player that he was. That was just a fantastic grand final. I know everyone talks about the violence in that grand final, but it's the two tries that Fulton scores. And I think it's Kevin Ryan is, is the other commentator. And he says, especially at the end where he scores the try on the, the corner, Fulton scores the try on the corner. He says, when Bobby Fulton decides to score a try, he scores it. And again, it's this pass that kind of pops up, I think, from Graham Eadie. And Fulton is there to take it and runs diagonally and scores. It's just, it's a great game, but it's such a dominating performance by one player in a grand final. That's, you know, a great memory to me from those early years. To me, the, the most impressive thing about Manly in the 70s is that it, it's basically three eras, and it's so it's so rare that a team can stay dominant in different eras. So they have those two premierships, then East take over, you kind of think that's when, you know, teams kind of fall away and a new challenger emerges. But then they are right back there in 76, getting it again. And then perhaps most impressively of all, they do it again without Fulton in 78. Exactly right. So 76 is Fulton's last match for Manly. I remember so well being devastated that he went to East. And I remember... I think there was a newspaper item or article or his column in the paper around the time of the 76 grand final. And there's so much speculation. Is he going to leave? Is he going to stay? And he was manly. You know, he'd been there for 10 years. He never played a game in reserve grade. That's what you always hear about Bobby Fulton is that he played over 200 games and never played a game in reserve grade at a time when well, probably someone like Max Krillich played 100 games in reserve grade. Mm -hmm. He could have gone to another club, but he didn't. But Fred Jones... He was a World Cup winning hooker. Uh, he was the premiership captain in 72 and 73. And Krillich was happy to just stay in reserve grade until finally he goes into the side in uh, 76. And, of course, they win the premiership that year. And he's the premiership captain in uh, 78 when they win the premiership. So um, Fulton never played reserve grade, whereas other great players at Manly obviously played a lot of reserve grade. Um, and he left to go to East. And he did it for the money, and I'm sure he did it with Arco's best wishes. And it was Packers' money that got into Eastern Suburbs. It didn't do them any good. They didn't win another premiership, really, till what, uh, 2002, did they? Mm. Played the odd grand final in that time. 
But, yeah, that was a devastating thing. But Frank Stanton, obviously an incredibly astute coach. Ken Arthurson, very astute. The word you always hear about Ken Arthurson, astute, an astute administrator. He was able to get these players in from elsewhere. And he didn't just buy them. They developed them. So many of those Manly players were local juniors. And so, yeah, I think there's kind of four Manly teams. There's the 1970 team with blokes like Bob Batty, who'd been there for a long time, and Norm Pounder and people like that. And then there's the 72-73 team, and then 76 and 78. There's a few players who played in both of them, but they're starting to develop again. So, yeah, to to remain successful for so long, you know, playing in, well, basically six grand finals, if you count the drawn grand final in 78, over those eight, nine years, that's a very impressive run. And, you know, and it was because they had great players and because those players, some of those blokes played in all four grand finals that, that, that they won. You know, Edie and, and Randall and, and Ian Martin, even though Ian Martin had some time in the country, uh, Ray Brandigan as well. You know, they are there all the time, but they bring these new blokes in who are just as good as well. And they were an easy team to follow in in the 70s, I suppose, Manly, because not only were they successful, but they played a great brand of attacking football. Manly were renowned for the attacking football they played because they had these fantastic back lines. Of course, you say they're an easy team to follow, but they're also a, a very easy team to hate. Uh, have, have you know long been known as as the team that everyone wants to see lose. I'm putting it to you. Do you think there's any truth in the idea that it was maybe '78 where things really started to turn in that direction? A lot of controversy uh, with the the semi-final series that year. We had Greg Hartley going from reserve, you know, refereeing reserve grade to to getting the grand final gig, and a lot of a lot of innuendo about things that may have happened in 78. This is also when you have the, the idea of this cartel, this inner circle with, with Ken Arthurson, one of the, the key members of that. Do you think it is it is in that 78 era where that public perception really started to turn against Manly? Yes, I do. And of course, I think it's ridiculous. Um, I know there was this, oh, we hate Manly. And a lot of people still hate Manly, but I'm sure... They don't know why they hate Manly. It's just probably their parents hated Manly. I, I was going to say, I was told to hate Manly, so I do. <laughs> exactly. So for what reason? And if you ask somebody why, they would not be able to put their finger on it. And some might be able to say, oh, back in 78. But it's it's about jealousy. That's certainly part of that. And any team that is successful, people are going to be jealous of them. We see that right now, don't we, with the Roosters and all the talk about the sombrero and the storm and how they get all these advantages. You know, it used to be Canberra and the Broncos. Uh, You know, the other teams were very, very jealous of them. I don't think it was any different with Manly. You know, when one club is so much better than the others, the other clubs should be trying to build up to that level, not drag that top team down to their own level. You know, the Roosters were outstanding in the mid-1970s. We've talked about that, 74, 75. They won those premierships. You know, what did Parramatta do? They went and got Jack Gibson eventually. Now, I know he had that time at South in the meantime, but, you know, they wanted the best coach. They went and got Jack Gibson. People always say, oh, Manly went and stole everybody's players, which, you know, okay. So we look at that. In the 1970s, South were the best team, and Arco thought, well, what can we do? Okay, fine. 
Let's go and get some of their good players, Ray Brannigan and John O'Neill, mostly. But Ron Coote, Mike Cleary, Elwyn Waters, where did they go? They all went to Easts. And yet you never hear in that era people criticising Easts for buying a premiership or buying you know, all of South's best players. You know, where were the howls of protests in 1974-75? We didn't hear any of them. So I think it's unfairly, you know, that Manly has lumbered with that story because I think East are, in that regard, just as guilty. Fair enough, it happens again in the late 70s. So Wests are there and they win the uh, the minor premiership. They go out in the preliminary final. Manly beat them in 78. So what do Manly do? Yes, they go and buy Les Boyd and John Dorothy and Ray Brown. But people say, oh, yeah, Manly trying to buy a premiership again. We don't hear the same thing when uh, Newtown, for example, under John Singleton, by Tom Radonikus, the late Tom Radonikus, or Graham O'Grady. We don't hear, oh, they're just trying to buy a premiership. They actually got them to the grand final. And then Roy Masters, he goes off to St George. I mean, he's the one complaining all the time about Manly stealing players. He went off himself. So I really think that there's a lot of criticism there of Manly that could easily be shared about with other clubs. Not only that, but, you know, Warren Ryan, when he went from Newtown to Canterbury, he took a whole lot of players with him as well. And then, as you were talking about in the West case study, he took five Canterbury players with him when he ended up in West in 1991. I didn't hear anybody say, oh, he's trying to buy a premiership. Oh, he's trying to buy all the best Canterbury players because Canterbury were... Uh, you know, one of the best sides in the competition around about that time. One other thing about this, and that is that um, another thing people never, ever mention is how Manly and their 78 premiership team was pillaged by Balmain. Balmain, this is something most people never, ever think about. Five players in that Manly premiership side in 1978 ended up playing with Balmain. That's a lot for one club to go to another club. We're talking about... Um, Simon Booth, who was a great winger, scored one of the greatest tries I've ever seen. Um, uh, Steve Knight, of course, been a rugby union player before that. Ian Thompson, Steve Martin, Russell Gardner, even Frank Stanton, the coach. They all ended up at Balmain. And yet you never hear this story about Balmain pillaging Manly. And yet that's exactly what happened. And look, if you want to talk about 1978, I know there's always a lot of speculation about it. But if you look at that semi-final where Parramatta and Manly drew 11-all, what was it? I think Parramatta led 11-2 and John Gray was sent off. So if you're trying to fix a game so that Manly wins, you don't send off a Manly player when the when Parramatta are 11-2 up. That just does not make sense. And then uh, the grand final, I think, again, it's 11-all and Steve Rogers gets a penalty and he misses a shot at goal. Like, if you're trying to make sure that Manly win that premiership, win that grand final, you don't do it by giving the other side a penalty with a couple of minutes to go to win the game. So I think there's a lot of people say, oh, yeah, Greg Hartley, you know, he fixed it so that Manly won. I just don't think there is any evidence of that whatsoever. I think you make very good points, especially with that penalty in the grand final. I think it... it comes down to you know the thing we mentioned in our show that the caesar's wife you don't just have to be pure and right you have to be seen to be pure and above reproach and and this is probably where it started with the cartel and then when artherson the incorporation of the league in 83 artherson moving from manly to you know that chairman of the arl 
that perception just gets, you know... Well, let's look at the reality, not the perception. The perception is that Manly got favouritism certainly in 1978. That's the perception. The reality is they were the team of the decade. They were an outstanding side with the best coach and they won that premiership in 78. Maybe they would have done it whether Gary Cook was a referee rather than Greg Harvey. After that, with all that going for them apparently and with Arco fixing everything up, they win one premiership in the next 18 years. That is not a side. That is not a club that is getting all the favouritism. They win in 87 and then they don't win again between 78 and 96. So that is not a team that has been favoured. In fact, a whole lot of other teams get a lot more favouritism than uh, Manly, I think, in that era. I think the only thing you could possibly say, and I don't know, and I'm not casting aspersions on this at all, but the fact that Max Krillich was captain on the 82 Kangaroo Tour, it always was a bit surprising to me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Bozo was captain on the 78 Kangaroo Tour, but I don't think anyone could dispute yep. that Bozo was the preeminent figure in the game. No doubt about it. Max Krillich, I mean, he performed mightily, scored a try in one of those test matches. You know, he was a, a bloke that obviously people looked up to. He was a premiership-winning captain as well with Manly. So you've got to look around for those sorts of leaders. It did surprise me, perhaps, that he was the kangaroo captain in 82. But, you know, whether Arco had anything to do with that, I have no idea. But maybe someone might would look into that. But that's about the only true evidence of somebody getting a slight favouritism. And don't forget that, and I remember it so well from uh, the night they selected the 82 Kangaroos after the grand final, when they only played and lost, by the way, we should point that out. So this favouritism, I don't know where it comes from when Manly lose two grand finals in a row in 82 and 83. They were labelled the worst kangaroo team of all time. So do you really want to be captain of the worst kangaroo team of all time? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, to, to paraphrase Jack Gibson talking about Scott Fulton's Super League contract, I think Max Krilich had, had a bit of help. Super League's a different matter. Scott <laughs> and Brett, I'm sure they were looked after. But, you know, but I think the point is, and I don't know if it was made on the, on the podcast or not, it would be a terrible, terrible look if Super League came along and gave Scott Fulton, you know, five times what the ARL was giving him so that the Australian coach's son was actually playing Super League. I think... As bad as it looked at the time and still looks now, I think the best thing for Scott Fulton was to remain with the ARL and, you know, they gave him a certain amount. He's not the only bloke that got, you know, over the odds money, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, I think with, with all the millions squandered in that period, we, we can call that hundred grand a write-off. <laughs> exactly right. Oh, dear. But uh, let... <laughs> let's um, let's you know we've we've been going a while now and, and are nowhere near Super League, but I, I don't want to get there just yet because uh, Andy and I did a special on the 1987 season. Uh, it, was, it was three part. We spent about three hours on that season, which uh, I, I loved researching that era and that Manly team. It, it was the first time my my heart was broken by Manly with uh, your thievery of Michael O'Connor. Uh, but that that is a great team. So can you talk to me about some of your thoughts about that 87 team? What a team. I mean, what a backline. Dale Shearer, Daryl Williams, the first New Zealander, I think, to win a premiership was uh, Daryl Williams. Uh, Michael O'Connor, Cliff Lyons, Des Hasler, and then Phil Daly, Mal Cochran, Kevin Ward, Noel Cleal, Ron Gibbs, Fatty. I mean, that is that is just class right across the park. And... They just did it at the right time. I mean, 
they they could have won those premierships in 82 and 83. I mean, they were really heartbreaking. Obviously, Parramatta, that Parramatta side was an outstanding team, one of the greatest of all time. But Manly had problems in 82. Ray Ritchie was the coach, and he was probably too nice a bloke, and they got Ray Brown across from West when they already had a half... Uh, they already had a hooker, and that was Max Krillich. And so there was all this problem about who would play hooker. And in the end, Ray Brown started the grand final and Max Krillich didn't come on until near the end in 82. And, you know, the Manly had been uh, minor premiers. They led the, uh, they won the, uh, the minor, uh, the major semifinal, won the major semifinals 20 nil. They should have won that grand final. and They didn't. Uh, I don't know what went wrong. Maybe it was because they didn't know who should be playing hooker there. In 83, they were eight points ahead at the end of the uh, minor premiership, and then they won the major semi again and lost again. So after that, they kind of cleaned it out. So uh, Bozo came in in 83, got you know all these ex-Queenslanders or some, a lot of old East players as well uh, in the 87 side. I mean, that was just an outstanding team. They won a lot of matches in a row that, that, uh, that season. I suppose they were lucky they came up against a Canberra side that was on the rise rather than a really great side in 86 like perhaps Parramatta or Canterbury who knows if they'd played one of them in the grand final whether Manly would have won but it's just one of those years isn't it that you take your chance that is your one year to win it and they took their chance and they won it and of course you know as you talked about in in that series yeah there were problems at Manly that year I mean Bozo came back that's fine he'd been there for a couple of years hadn't really done anything they had made the semis in 84 85 86 you know, mostly lost that first game and were out. In the 83 grand final and the 87 grand final, there are only two players left. So they made a grand final only four years earlier, and yet Fatty and Crusher were the only blokes left from that 83 team that played in the 87 grand final. So Bozo knew what he was doing. He got these new players, and, you know, they came together for that one year. Because we know it kind of fell apart the next year, because... First match of the 88 season, that infamous game at uh, Lang Park, the Broncos' first game, and Manly had thumped. So what happened? Because like when I look at that team, it just seems so stacked. And a, a team that, you know, as Canberra did in the in the years ahead, it seemed like Manly were primed to be like a dominant force, and it just never happened. And, I mean, maybe if you got Gene Miles and Wally Lewis like you, you came very close to, things could have been different. But But how do you see that? Well, that's interesting because they were supposed to come down for the 87 season. And there was that famous press conference where Wally joked, oh, we're signed with Manly, but in fact, no, we're staying in Queensland. I'm glad they didn't come down because Wally was kind of at the end of his career, starting to be at the end of his career, and I think he was not the player that Manly wanted. You know, they had Lyons and Hasler there in the halves, perfect. And if, um, if Wally had come down and Gene Miles and Manly had won the premiership in 87, which they did anyway, people would have just said, oh, well, that's just Manly. They bought another premiership. And I'm glad they didn't do that. So they stayed stayed at the Broncos. What happened over the next few years, of course, is Bozo leaves, Graham Lowe comes on board as coach. I don't think he was the right fit. I think Manly always is best. And you look at it from their premierships. Manly is best when they have an ex-Manly player coaching the side. So it's, you know, Ron Willey, it's Bozo, it's Frank Stanton, it's Des Hasler. The eight premierships all come from people who were Manly people. And Graham Lowe was not that. Um, I mean, Manly would make the semi-finals nearly every year, but they'd go out in the first week and they were usually beaten by Brisbane. That happened about four times, I think, in that time. 
I remember also that they had a lot of New Zealand players. They were nicknamed Maori Waringa at one point, I think because of Graham Lowe, who I think is overrated as a coach. You know, he didn't really ever perform at international, uh, international level. And then there was that, I'm sure you remember, that infamous match where Queensland and New South Wales and Origin and Mal Meninga smashes Michael O'Connor in the face. But of course, no one cited because... Graham Lowe's coaching Queensland, so he doesn't want Mal out, and Tim Sheens is coaching Canberra. So he's not going to, as New South Wales coach, cite his Canberra star. So I really found that that entire thing extremely unpleasant. Uh, I think Manly were better off when Graham Lowe left. I know, you know, he's a lovely bloke, I'm sure, and he's had his health problems, and I certainly wish him the best. But I think Manly were at its best, is always at its best, when um, an ex-Manly player is coach. And then uh, Bozo came back in 93-94. But you look at those players, they were not as good. With all due respect, like anyone who plays first-grade football, you've got to think you're a good player. You may not be a great player, but if you look at the the team from, say, 1990-91, you've got Frank Stokes, good player, but not great. Tony Iroh, good, but not great. John Jones, Matt Dunford, Peter Cullum, David Hosking, they're all journeyman first graders. They are not the guys who are going to win you a premiership. And then in 93, Ivan Cleary, okay, he's turned out to be a good coach, and he kicked a lot of goals, but I don't know that he was a great player. John Devereaux, I think he was from England, you know, he was okay. He's not going to win you a premiership. Jack Elsgood had one great year, and that was it. Very good-looking man. Very good-looking bloke, and a relation wasn't he related to Bumper Farrell too? Um, David O'Donnell as well, David Alexander. I mean, they're guys that had been at other clubs and then turned up at Manly. I just don't think they were the right fit for Manly, and it took again a little time for Bozo to sort of clean that out, and then of course we hit Super League. Because I, uh, you know, you mentioned Manly always making the finals and, and getting knocked out in the first week. That's that was my memory of them. Growing up, it was always like, oh, Manly, they're always the team that comes fourth and then they, you know, they lose. Um, so I, I kind of wasn't prepared in 95 when suddenly, like, they were this dominant force. And, I mean, obviously Canberra were equally dominant that year. I think that's kind of been lost to time because we just remember these three glorious years of Manly. Uh, but it, it took me a while to reckon with the fact that Manly were this really top team. And, and now I've really got to dial up the hatred yeah, the thing I remember most about 95, of course, is the 15 matches in a row to mm. start the season. The greatest start, I think, to any season. And then they only lost two games all year. That match against the Roosters at Brookvale, I think it was, where you know Gus threatened to you know, take the side off the field. They lost in round 16. Uh, that was to the Roosters. And then later they lost, uh, lost to Cronulla. But that was it. And, you know, they should have won the grand final. And, uh, you know... When people talk about manly bias, they have got to look at the 1995 Grand Final. It's one of the worst refereeing performances in history. Without any doubt. With all due respect to Eddie Ward. Because for a start, okay, I think they finished sixth, I think, that year, didn't they? They scored three tries. Two are from forward passes and one's on the seventh tackle. Now, I'm not saying manly deserved to win that game because they just did not play well enough. But Canterbury didn't deserve to win that game either. Uh, yeah, it should have been a nil-all draw, quite frankly. 
And and then even then, with about 10 minutes to go, it's still only 10-4. Manly could have won. They just weren't good enough. And people say, oh, Bozo trained them too hard or whatever. They left, you know, and we hear this a lot, like, they left their worst game of the year to last. But that was a really devastating blow for many Manly fans that that's the grand final that got away. I, I could imagine. And just, just on Bozo, Mr. Cement Truck himself... I can't believe how magnanimous he was uh, in the aftermath of that. You're right, one of the worst refereed games in rugby league history. And he basically didn't speak about it. He just said, we we were never in the game, Canterbury were too good for us today. Yeah, well, he was right. I mean, that's the thing. When you are beaten as badly, even though the referee, I don't think he's doing it deliberately, but, you know, unwittingly. Even today, you'd have to think that with the bunker, they're not going to rule on forward passes and they're not going to, you know, know about the seventh tackle. So, you know, probably Canterbury could still get away with winning a game like that today. But, yeah, Manly just weren't in it. They just were not in it. And that, I hate to say, it's the same as 82 and 83. You know, they've been dominant all year and they just couldn't get the job done on grand final day. Uh, now, before we get to the, you know, the elephant in the room, uh, I, I, I have to, to thank you for your mercy in letting us get through 1994 without mentioning the 61 nil. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, but the, One let's, of the great games of all time. <laughs> let's turn to everything that happened in 1995 with Super League. I'm, I'm sure like everyone else, you found out on April 1. So uh, can you tell me uh, some of your early memories? Yeah, well, I was in Canberra at the time. I just moved to Canberra. And I still have the newspaper, which I don't have in front of me, but I still have the newspaper from the day before. So from March 31st, and there was a little blind item in the sports section saying, if you thought that these whispers had gone away, they haven't, and something big is brewing. And so the next day when it blew up, I was devastated. I mean, I hated Super League then. I hate it now. Uh, Everything about it goes against what I believe in with Rugby League and... Just how do you even... I mean, you're taking all this time to tell the story. I just found it to be a reenactment of something that I'd hated and gone through in the 70s with World Series cricket. The difference with World Series cricket is all those players had no contract. And so Packer was just able to come in and sign the contracts. And they didn't even have a contract with the Cricket Australia or Australian Cricket Board. With Super League... All these blokes did. The clubs had contracts, I presume, with the uh, you know, head office, and the players all had contracts with the clubs. So how somebody could come in and just sign them up and start a new competition was beyond my belief. But, of course, hey, we've seen it this week with soccer as well. Um, my feeling is, hey, if, if News Limited want to start their own competition, by all means, go and do that. Start your own clubs cite them somewhere, put them somewhere, and then wait till there's a whole lot of players off contract or sign players when they're off contract. Do it that way. Don't come in and start breaking contracts the way they did. I really thought it was disgraceful. Then it's often been said about Rupert and certainly News Limited that they never had a monopoly that they didn't like, and they wanted a monopoly on rugby league, not only the you know the, the covering of the game, the, the TV coverage of the game, but they wanted... You're running the game as well. There's nothing good came of Super League. And I think the people who came up with the plan, even today, 
would be hard-pressed to come up with any good thing that came of Super League. There's a lot to unpack in that answer, which which I want to take the time to do. But I, I want to go back to the very first part of what you said there with the similarities between Super League and World Series cricket. So some someone of my generation grew up with the story of World Series cricket, but with none of the the memory of the turmoil at the time or the idea that there were, you know, two Australian teams and and all that unrest that it caused. To me, it's just, you know, the, the victors tell the story. And I was just like, oh, okay, well, you know, they went through a turbulent period in the 70s, but everything worked out all right. And now cricket's great. What well, was... I mean, I, I would think to differ there. <laughs> well, I think everything is great. Uh, well, I, I, mean, I don't think it's great now, but growing up, that, that was my perception. So I, I, want, I want to know how you processed that and how that like revolution played itself out devastating that was far more devastating to me than super league as much as i love rugby league i mean i love cricket very much as well Mm. and you talk about how you know history is written by the winners and channel 9 won and they kept telling their story i remember when kerry packer died you know here's a guy who was without doubt a giant of the australian media landscape Two minutes into the obituary, they're into World Series cricket. As if that's the only legacy he has. He's got a terrible legacy in other things, with casinos and all sorts of stuff like that, and, and how terrible, say, Channel 9's coverage of rugby league was. You've talked about that on the program a lot, on the podcast. I just... The idea that someone with money, some bully with money, could come in and buy up a country's cricket team so that he could play his own games on TV for his own TV network so that they could fill up the local content. You know, you had to, in those days, have a certain amount of Australian content uh, on TV, and he did it by playing endless hours of cricket. That was one of the reasons. Not only that, there was a contract that the ABC had with the ACB to screen cricket. Packer wanted them to break that by offering more money. I mean, it's people like Packer that money is everything. So if you throw enough money at a problem, that problem goes away. And um, you can't do that. I mean, they had a contract and they wanted to honour that contract. And Packer said, forget that contract. Don't worry, I'm going to buy all these players up. Those players didn't have a contract, as I said, with, uh, with the central body or with the states or anything like that. And good luck to them. I don't blame the players. They were finally earning some money. But they were being manipulated by a bloke that if Cricket Australia, or ACB as it was then, had just rolled over and said, "Radio, you can have the TV rights. World Series cricket and Kerry Packer's benevolence to all these players, that just simply wouldn't have existed. Cricket would have gone on the way it always had, except that it would have been screened on Channel 9 instead of the ABC. And how did the, you know, there's some interesting parallels there with, with the TV side of things. And I, I think we've tried to make the point that the, the framing of the war is just Packer versus Murdoch is simplistic and, and not the, the whole story. But how, how do you square that then, seeing Packer on the side of the ARL? and Again, I mean, this is the thing, that whether he, when he lay down and closed his eyes at night when he went to sleep, did he ever think back, hmm, somebody's doing to me what I did to them? The ABC had a TV contract with the ACB to broadcast cricket. He wanted to usurp that. He wanted the contract to do it. Somebody else was then about to do that to him. I wonder whether he ever thought, mm, yeah, well, I'm reaping the whirlwind now. This is going to cost me hundreds of millions of dollars to keep my TV rights. You're right. It is not about Packer and Murdoch. There's a whole lot of other things. Um, 
there's a lot of ungrateful uh, teams that have just been let into the ARL that walk out without a ball being kicked. That I find incredible for those teams, Western Reds and mm. uh, the New Zealand and, and North Queensland. I just don't know how they could do it. But again, the question is, and I don't know that it's ever been satisfactorily answered, if the ARL had said, you know what, we'll give you the pay TV rights. Sure, we've got a contract with Optus Vision and whatever it was, but we'll give them to you. You can broadcast Rugby League. Do we honestly think that Super League would have happened? The answer surely must be no. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess the, the initial idea was that Super League would be done in conjunction with the ARL. Uh, and, you know, for various reasons, the, the pay TV deal that was in place, chief among them, that didn't happen. But, but that kind of leads me to the question that beyond the, the contracts that were in place and all, all that side of things, you have to look at where the game was and whether the ARL were doing enough. And I think this is where Andy and I always come down on the side of that something had to be done about Sydney and the ARL were, were sitting on their hands. And I, I just wonder how you see that that part of the story. Okay. Well, we go back then to 1983. And I remember watching that episode of Four Corners the night it went to air that made the allegations against Kevin Humphreys and he then resigned basically, I think, the next day. But, you know, that 70s era, that was pretty good from Kevin Humphreys. Now, I know there's criticism, oh, they should have done more, they didn't do enough. Compare the way the... New South Wales Rugby League was, say, um, in 1980, compared with the AFL, or VFL as it was then. I mean, what had been introduced in the just in the few years since uh, Kevin Humphreys took over in 1973 with the death of Bill Buckley, they had the Amco Cup brought in in 74, a midweek competition that I would love to see back these days. They played two World Series, 1975 and 77. These days, people call them a World Cup. They weren't. They shouldn't be counted as World Cups. But there was international competition with four teams here, or five teams, I think, at one point in Australia. They expanded the competition with uh, Illawarra and Canberra, which I think are the logical places to expand, expand at that point. There's a big city in Canberra and there's a big rugby league town in Illawarra. They could have gone to Newcastle, but, you know, they expanded the competition. I think they did well there. Colour TV was a massive boom. And, again, people today would not understand the difference between the way that Rugby League was broadcast in 1974 and the years before that, the 10 years, I think, Rugby League on TV began in 1964 in Australia, up to 74. Once Colour TV comes in in 75, it is a totally new world. And I think they handled that pretty well. Um, there was, you know, coverage on two channels, which you don't get now on free-to-air. It was on the ABC, which had two matches a weekend on the Saturday and the Sunday. And then you had uh, Rex Mossop and coverage of all the other games on Sports Action on a Sunday morning, these days you get free-to-air on one channel, on Channel 9, and that is it. In those days, you got them on two channels. They had TV coverage of the Rothmans Medal as well. State of Origin was developed in that time and began in 1980. I think the development of the game, the expansion of the game in the 1970s was actually done pretty well. Now, they didn't reduce the number of teams in Sydney, which they could have done, but I think they were maybe waiting for teams to go broke eventually. I don't know. But I think that Kevin Humphreys created the modern game. And I don't think there's a lot of criticism could be made there. Because if you look at the AFL or the VFL as it was then, they weren't expanding. 
they weren't doing it. It was exactly the same number of teams that have been playing for the last 70 years. So I think that uh, rugby league did it pretty well compared with, you know, and there was no other sort of sports that were in competition at that stage either. I mean, it's a very different sporting landscape now. And, and I, th- I think you're right. Uh, and, you know, moving forward from the Humphreys era, you know, into Arco and Quail throughout the 80s, I don't think anyone could seriously argue that rugby league wasn't in a much better position, you know, in the early 90s. And we've got Tina Turner and, and everything else that was happening. Crowds were up. TV figures were great. It was all looking very good. But it, it just seemed, and, you know, this was in our research, finding some some insiders talking about just an air of complacency that was creeping in to the administration. And then you've got a failure to reckon with Brisbane, who are becoming such a dominant force and such a strong off-field presence. And it just seems that it was a a very insular and inward-looking administration that couldn't get out of Sydney. And I, I think maybe in the early 90s, if someone else had come in, you know, if Arco had left and, and maybe you got some younger blood coming in, you might have avoided some of the tension that... Except that, as you, pointed, as you have pointed out in the podcast, most of the people running rugby league died in office. So, yeah. you know, <laughs> you, you might want some new blood, but you've got to keep... The, I think Arco and Quayle did a great job. I agree, I agree. And, and I always think back to a quote that, from Wayne Bennett, I think in the post-Super League era... When I don't know who, whether it was David Moffat or someone was running the rugby league, and all sorts of decisions were being made, and, and nobody really knew what was going on. And Wayne Bennett, of all people, said, "Well, at least when Arco and Quail were running it, you knew who was in charge." Mm. And look, they expanded the game. And in those days, this is obviously looking at the American model as well. That when the NFL or Major League Baseball, or even hockey. That's a classic example. They went from six teams to they've got 30 teams now. They expand without contracting. So, you know, they slice the pie a little thinner, but I presume the rugby league thought, well, we can do the same thing. We we can expand without contracting. They tried to get rid of Newtown and West. Newtown went. I wonder what would have happened if they'd actually won the 81 grand final and then were out by 83. Mm-hmm. And West. You know, I know I totally agree with what you've been talking about with the um, the West case study. They should have just gone to Campbelltown and cut all their ties with the inner west of um, Sydney, and I think we'd be better off there. So they tried to cut the number of teams and bring it back to 12, with, I presume, the aim to expand a couple of years later. They probably could have done without the Gold Coast, but yes, get they should have brought two Brisbane teams in uh, at once and brought Newcastle in. I, I think that was okay. I think probably they might have still been thinking, well, some of these, more of these teams, not just West and uh, Newtown are going to go broke and fall over and then we can expand. I think that they, they, I think, and Arco is, is certainly in the case here, is that he thought these teams that we bring in are going to be grateful to us and they're not going to turn around and bite the hand that fed them and brought them into the competition. And their biggest mistake was going with private ownership of the Broncos instead of going with the QRL because I think that Super League would not have existed if the QRL bid had been accepted. But would the Broncos have been as strong? You know, like to me, it goes back to what you were saying about Manly in the 70s where why should 
like a strong club be be brought back down to the pack? Why should instead of going with a you know a successful and, and innovative new way of doing things, go with that same you know blazers and and brill cream style administration, which had taken the game to a point, but you know was it compatible with the coming decade? Well, I don't think they knew what was going to happen, and that's why I think they should have gone with a QRL bid, obviously, in hindsight, rather than going with a, a private ownership model. Because we've seen it doesn't always work out. You know, no. look and- at the Broncos now, and you look at the Gold Coast, you look at Manly, you look at any of these teams that are privately owned, they're not necessarily all that successful. No, and for, for every Russell Crowe, you get 10 Nathan Tinklers. Exactly right. So maybe, you know, you get a... a situation like at the Roosters where it is basically privately owned and it's one person who does it rather than a committee yeah and and I, th- I think what you know Andy and I are the kings of of hindsight we we can you know tell tell everyone what they should have done because we've got the benefit of 25 years of it of playing out but you know so so I am a very sympathetic to uh the ARL and and I I do think that Arthurson and Quayle in particular did a great job uh but I guess I'm I may be more uh, more ambivalent than you about the the actual uh, you know benefits of, of Super League. Where I think we agree is that the the model that Super League presented was just fundamentally at odds with the game of rugby league and the the people who follow it. And I I just to to me it was it was a spe- spectacular misreading of the room. Yeah, absolutely, totally. I once heard it described that rugby league was tribal warfare fought by mercenaries. And they thought that the mercenaries, you know, would win. And the tribes won. And we saw that with soccer this week as well. That people don't want to give up their team for some Frankenstein team. I know, as a Manly fan, I never, ever warmed to the Northern Eagles whatsoever. And whoever thought the idea of the Northern Eagles, Manly and Norths playing on the Central Coast, was the idea of how a modern football club should be run, they've got no idea about what football is. Now, I agree there are too many teams in Sydney, but which ones do you get rid of? And which fans do you you alienate? They chose to alienate the Norths fans, and has that made much difference? I mean, Norths are still playing. They play in the, the feeder competition. But... It's not an area that Rugby League was particularly interested in at all anyway, on the north side of Sydney or the north shore of Sydney, um, which happened to be where I was living. So, you know, do they want to annoy Cronulla fans? Do they want to get rid of uh, the Balmain fans? You know, they've already kind of done that. I think it's way beyond time for Rugby League to do something. But it's never going to happen now. I think we're stuck with these 16, possibly now 17 teams, and no team is sort of going to go broke right now that's the problem and we need to, we need at least one or two teams to decide that they are going to merge and amalgamate i'm not against them but it's got to be where the fans are involved rather than just forced by head office or by uh, owners so let, let's talk about your i don't i don't want to get too far ahead and and talk about you know now or, or the northern eagles yet anyway i, I, I want to go back to i will say one thing sort of one other thing about arco and that is i think his greatest legacy is that the people that run the game these days aren't necessarily affiliated with clubs. So that's the most important thing of the Arco era, is that, you know, Peter Volandis, uh, Andrew Abdo, 
they aren't affiliated with any club. You would hope that they're making the decisions for the best interests of rugby league, which I think Arco definitely was. But as you say, you know, you, you know, it has to be seen to be done as well mm. as actually being done. And I think that's the ultimate, um, you know, we think of Dave Smith, even Todd Greenberg, I know he was at Canterbury and, um, you know, you never really always associated him with Canterbury, but, you know, some of those blokes that ran rugby league after Arco weren't club affiliated. And, and are you saying that's a, a good thing or a bad thing? No, I think that's his enduring legacy. And it may be a good thing. I, I think, you know, we need to know that somebody knows who Benji Barber is. But, you know, like it is important that we know um, who the Australian captain is. If you're running rugby league, yep. um, you need to have the confidence of the fans. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's something that we've talked about a lot. The the driving force and the, the handbrake on rugby league is rugby league men. You, you can't rug, run rugby league without them. Anytime an outsider does come in, it, it goes terribly because there's just this inherent, you know, mistrust and, and you're never going to have that credibility. But but then it seems there's a limit on what rugby league men can achieve. So it's a funny one. But but, but well, uh so one other I know, I'm sorry, I'm just saying one other thing about Arco in that in that whole Super League court battle and everything, I think he was pretty much beyond reproach. His old mate Peter Moore was found to be corrupt by the judge and no one said anything like that, remotely like that about Arco or Quayle. Yeah, yeah, very good point. Uh, I, w- I wanted to talk about your tribe a bit more and just the fact that they they were obviously seen as being, you know, very key to the ARL and of course they were. You had Arco, you had Bob Fulton, you had these very close links with the ARL. But then coming into 97 and, you know, before the, the future was decided, it seemed that there was a it, it was being talked about almost as as a, a given that Manly were were close to to going off to Super League, you know, if there were two competitions in '98. Like, and I don't know how close they got, you know, behind the scenes, but just the fact that that could even be discussed, you know, shows you that that you know things weren't as they were in in '95 by '97. I'd like to know how close that came. I mean, I obviously was not inside. I'm a fan. I'm sitting on the other side of the fence. I could not possibly imagine that it would happen. But, at, you know, at some point after Super League had won that second court case, you know, people were looking for lifeboats. Nobody knew how this was going to shake out. We didn't know how it was going to end. So, you know, you've got to make sure you're on the winning side. And it has been pointed out many times. You know, those Super League teams, the Sydney Super League teams are all still in the competition. Yeah. Um, you know, we, I don't want to annoy the Cronulla fans. I'll wait till somebody does the Cronulla case study. But that's the one team that I think maybe we could have done without if they were looking to get rid of teams. But, you know, they went to Super League and they prospered. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, in, in discussing late 97, we're, we're glossing over some... You know, a very fruitful on-field period for Manly. So I am going to to give you the floor to discuss the '96 Premiership. <laughs> but but before we before we get there, so three three grand finals in a row, uh, one Premiership. What do you think par is in that scenario? Look, it's happened uh, a couple of times since then, hasn't it? it? Happened with the Roosters in 2002, three, four, where they only won one Premiership. It happened with 
the Storm recently as well. They only won one premiership out of uh, three grand finals. Par, I would think, with that team, should have been three grand finals, to be honest. One, okay, fair enough. It is the classic Miami team, this team of legends and journeymen. So Matthew Ridge, Jeff Toovey, David Gillespie, Terry Hill, John Hopawade, Cliff Lyons, Steve Menzies, Ian Roberts, Nick Kossiff, Owen Cunningham, Daniel Gartner, Danny Moore, Solomon Hamono, Mark Carroll. I mean, they that's an all-time great team. And yeah, you're right. They only won one premiership. And in 96, they deserved to be premiers. Um, they led the minor premiership from June until September. Uh, they dominated the grand final, even allowing for that controversy. To this day, I think he was tackled. But, you know, that's that's just me. The referee didn't. Uh, St. George finished seventh on the ladder. Manly were minor premiers and in that minor premier position from June. I don't think anyone could possibly say that Manly didn't deserve to win the 96 grand final. Yeah, I, I still get Dragons fans talking to me about the Ridge tackle. And, like, you're so right. Manly were the better team all year. It's, it, it'd be hard to imagine. I'm thinking maybe West in the early 60s. It's hard to see a team as good not winning a premiership. And so I'm quite philosophical about it. And when I think back, 96 isn't even a, a major heartbreak for me. It's certainly not compared to, to some of the, the footballing heartbreaks I've enjoyed as a Dragons fan. It's just one of those things where the, the better team won and, and we just happened to come up against them. Yeah, well, you've got to remember, you finished seventh. A team mm. that finishes seventh should not win the premiership. Not only that, it was St George's last ever grand final. And I think that's kind of forgotten in the St George Illawarra era, is that it was an unexpected. You weren't supposed to. It was a bits and pieces team that was put together with spare parts. You didn't even have a team at the start of the year, and somehow you made the grand final. It's one of the, with all due respect to that team, it's one of the worst teams ever to make the grand final. Um, and you didn't deserve to win. If you could be philosophical about it, I can be philosophical about the 97 grand final as well, because that was a weird year, obviously, the split competition. The ARL, for some reason, decided in a 12-team competition to have a seven-team semi-final series, which never works. There is no way of making a fair seven-team semi-finals. Manly played... Remember that... The Manly-Newcastle semi? Newcastle. Yeah. So Manly won and went into the preliminary final. Newcastle lost and went into the preliminary <laughs> final. How does that work out? <laughs> that was a totally pointless game that also gave, I think, Manly a, um, you know, a sort of feeling that they were going to beat Newcastle the next week. Remember, there was all that thing. Oh, they played them and, and beaten them, what, 17 times in a row or something. Mm. Manly should have won. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Manly should have won that game. But for all their dominance... Yeah, a lot of things went wrong for Manly that day. They were never more than 10 points ahead. People, I think, tend to forget that. Um, would they have wanted if Ian Roberts and Matthew Ridge had played? I don't know. Uh, maybe if Ridge was there, because Sharon, Shannon Nevin was a good player, but he was no Matthew Ridge. But people should forget that Jim Sedaris is suspended and missed the game. Is that Manly bias, pro-Manly bias? I doubt it very much. You know, Jeff Toody was stomped in the face by Adam McDougall early in the game, and that must have had a terrible effect on Manly's play as well. Craig Field was carried off. You get down to that last minute as well. And on the fifth tackle, when it's 16-all, Cliff Lyons does not kick. 
he passes it to John Hopawati, who is caught in possession, and then there's the handover to Newcastle that allows them to go back up and score. So if Lyons had kicked it out, or kicked it all the way down to the, the try line at the other end, then the game has a totally different ending, and it's a 16-all draw, and then you know they go into extra time. And Manly might still have lost. They were really out on their feet at that point. I don't think it's ever... I don't think it's really a disgrace to be beaten by a team with Andrew Johns in it. Or That was a very, very good Newcastle side. But as much as it hurt on that day to watch Manly lose, I know it was good for the game. I know that it was better for the ARL, which I was a supporter of, to win that premiership for Newcastle. Because if Manly had won, people would have just thought, oh, well, of course Manly won. They're the, you know, the favoured team. They're the favoured club. You know, the ARL and ARCO and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, of course, Manly won. So what? But the fact that Newcastle won, I mean, it just changes the narrative of who wins the Super League war. Because, of course, Brisbane win their Super League title. Who cares? I mean, for all the fuss that News Limited went to to get Super League and to get Rugby League on TV, do you ever see a Super League match on Fox League? Never. When they, you know, at grand final time, run the old grand finals, you never see the 97 Super League grand final, which was a pretty ordinary game, as far as I recall, with um, Brisbane beating Cronulla. Everyone wanted a Brisbane-Canberra grand final, but, uh, you know, Cronulla kind of snuck in there. And, like, who cares? Who cares about it? Because Brisbane won. They were supposed to win Super League, and they did. The thing I also remember about that was that Super League copped a bad break because... I think it was the week before that, perhaps, it was the night of Princess Diana's funeral. And everybody was watching that. They were not watching the Super League semifinals. One of which, I think, or a couple of weeks of them were played on a Monday night of all things. So, yeah, that that really took a lot of the wind out of the sails of Super League. And that Saturday night grand final, no one cared, played at QE2, I think. Whereas that beautiful Sunday afternoon... When Newcastle beat Manly, okay, I'll give it to them. Good luck to them. They were a great side. It was the best thing that could have happened to the IRL. And that's the one grand final that Manly have lost that I can look at and think, okay. I hated the way it happened, but at least it was a great try that won the game. At least there was some drama there, and it wasn't, you know, a blowout. Yeah, oh, it would have been tragic if, you know, if it played out the way you suggested, if Cliff Lines had kicked it and we, we were robbed of that finish. Just, just while you were talking, I, I want you know we all know the the World Club Challenge was a debacle in '97, and that is that is probably the one thing that prevented a, a Super Bowl being played between Newcastle and Brisbane. You know, with, with the way the fixtures were, there was a lot of talk about a potential Super Bowl, and in the end, there were you know too many scheduled games. You had Super League tests as well that it was just not feasible. And you just wonder if they hadn't had that World Club challenge, they could have had a Super Super Bowl. I wonder if that would have gone some way to legitimising the Super League competition. Because you're right, it's just that whole season from the Super League side has just disappeared. It, it's just not on the radar of anyone. Would well, you think that it, they were trying for two years prior to that, and then you know a year maybe planning it in '94 to finally get on the field? Then Super League is played. I've got to say, I barely watched a game. Uh, in Canberra at the time, I was living in Canberra at the time, it was kind of hard to avoid it. But was there anything memorable about Super League? 
Does anybody remember anything about Super League except, you know, Chubby Checker for the Adelaide Rams and, you know, Belinda Carlisle turning up in Canberra to sing one hit and she had to visit local radio station <laughs> to remember the words of the song. You know, like, for all the rubbish that went on about Super League. So at least with World Series cricket, as much as I hate it, People do remember. They remember David Hooks getting his jaw broken. They remember Viv Richards. They remember Dennis Lilly. They remember all of that because it's been rerun on TV so many times by Channel 9. I doubt I've seen anything of Super League on Fox League, and I think the only match anyone remembers is that um, the, the Tri-Series match that was the longest game ever played. And the funny thing is, we talked about it before, the victors telling the story. News Limited were in in almost every sense the victors, and yet then they're not telling the story. So it's it's it does stand out, doesn't it? Well, it stands out that it has to be up to you guys, you and Andy, to tell this story at length. Everybody having their say, and yet have we seen a thirty for thirty style thing on Fox League about Super League? It is their story to tell, and they should be telling it. You know, with all their Matty John shows, and that's wall-to-wall Matty Johns from what I can see on, on Fox League, we never see a proper documentary. I might talk a little bit about Super League, and they all laugh about how much money they got. That's basically the level. I'd love it if maybe somebody sat down with John Rebo and Arco and Quail. But <laughs> why not? Why not an hour-long documentary? We had the 25th anniversary. You and I spoke about it on radio. You know, and yet nothing. We heard nothing from... Fox. It's, it's almost as if they're embarrassed that they were part of it. That, you know, once they got the rights, that's it. That was what they were after. They got those rights. End of story. Uh, well, maybe if someone would make that documentary, I could wrest control of my life back because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm a long way from, from seeing any light. But, but just as we finish, I, I think part of the reason for that is in that bitterness and, and the way that the fans just fell out with the game. So I, I want to uh, ask about your experience as a Manly fan going into the Northern Eagles and, and how you you felt about it all and, and where you were emotionally. Yeah, emotionally very neutral. That I loved Manly. I still love Manly, but for three years they didn't exist. And because I was living in Canberra at the time, the worst thing that happened to Super League in Canberra was the rise of the Brumbies. And... They played their first game in Super Rugby in 1996. The Kookaburras had come into the Sydney Rugby competition in 1995 and had got to the grand final their first year. In 97, the year of Super League, the Brumbies made the final against the odds. No one expected them to make the final and they made it against Auckland, then the biggest club in the world, the biggest uh, provincial rugby team in the world. And then after that, 2000, they're in the final at uh, Canberra Stadium. In fact, it snowed that night. It was the night before the, the infamous West Tigers Canberra snow game, game snowed. So that was the night before was the Super Rugby final where the Brumbies led for like a minute and a half at the end and then uh, they, uh, they lost right at the very death. But they won the next year. They won in 2004 as well. They were in the final in 2002. Um, in 2004, the greatest football game I've ever seen, where the Brumbies are leading 33-0 after 18 minutes against Canterbury Crusaders, the greatest team in history. That's what Super League was up against in 95, 96, 97 in Canberra. So the Raiders were going okay. Obviously, they'd come off being premiers in 94. But all of a sudden, there was some competition. 
And it was, in fact, competition from their own side because, you know, Super League was a product invented for News Limited uh, and Foxtel to, to provide content for that. So that really affected them. So I was a huge Brumbies fan. I went to all those games, all those home games, and I really fell out of love with the Northern Eagles. And it took me a long time to fall back in love with them. I mean, they had a terrible run. They just weren't very good. And, you know, you look at the blokes in the team, this is not a great manly team. Andrew Frew, Andrew King, Albert Torrens, Nigel Roy, Brendan Reeves, they're not names to conjure with. I mean, they had a great forward pack because it was a mix of uh, Manly and North. So, you know, Mark O'Mealy and Steve Menzies and, and Jeff Tuvey playing hooker, Adam Muir, Nick Costefo and Cunningham, very good forward pack. But, you know, they're being coached by Peter Sharp, who's not a manly man. They, and I mean manly as in with a capital N, but, um, and then Brett Kamali, he gets signed. He's going to be their franchise player, which is the term I hate. And Fatty says, we can build a club around him. And I thought, no, Manly are not, they're not a team or a club that is built around some bloke you bring in from elsewhere. They are built from the ground up. They get good players from elsewhere, but it's never just built around one person, even allowing for the Bob Fulton years. So that, just never rung true with me, and he only stayed one year anyway. You know, they finished 10th out of 14. They finished 9th out of 14. They finished 14th out of 15. They would have run last <laughs> in 2003, Manly, but South was so bad. You know, they, we were really lucky that uh, South were as bad as they were. But then in 2004, what do they do? They get a Manly player back. They get Des Hasler to coach them. And at this point, this is when the privatisation vote takes place. You know... It saved Manly, you know, in the interim. And we know the problems that have occurred with, you know, warring owners of Manly. It didn't help them. In 2005, again, they finished eighth. In 2006, they finally made the semi-finals again. They're unluckily beaten 28-0 by St. George Illawarra. I mean, that was so much closer than 28-0. And then all of a sudden, out of the blue, they win the premiership in 2008 in the greatest game of all time, which was their 40-0 <laughs> win over... The Storm, which to this day is still an astonishing match, that the Storm, as great as they were, a team beat them 40 nil, And this is only... They get to the grand final, of course, in 2007 and are beaten, but this is three or four years after, and I'll just read this. Their first-round team, Scott Donald, Luke Williamson, Paul Stevenson, Jai Mullane, Daniel Heckenberg, Nathan Hollingworth, you know, Ian Donnelly, Sam Harris, Shane Dunley, they are not all-time great players, with all due respect to any of them who might be listening. You know, that is not a team to build a premiership uh, out of. But somehow, by the time, you know, 2007 to 2008 arrive, Brett Stewart, Michael Robertson, Steve Bell, Steve Maddai, of course, Jamie Lyon, him coming to the club was a, just so an, such an important thing. Matt Orford, who had gone to... Uh, the Northern Eagles, I think, at some point, and there was a bit of a swap there. Brent Kite, Jason King, Glenn Stewart. You know, like, suddenly, they had brought these blokes through and they were premiership winners, and that's the sort of club that I loved. I'm, I was well back in love with Manly by the time they won the 2008 Grand Final. But And then 2011, I think the thing that, you know, talking about that thing about not ever running last, the other thing that Manly fans are immensely proud of is that they are the only club that have made a grand final in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, teams. They've won a premiership in the 70s, 80s, 90s, noughties, teams. I hope that we win another premiership in this decade, or at least make a grand final to keep that streak going. But no other club 
can make that boast. And I think that's an extraordinary thing about Manly is just how they've been able to reinvent themselves so often with Manly players. And I don't know where the next um, coach is going to come from. I don't know who's going to replace Des Hasler, but he's got to be a former Manly star. Uh, well, Rod, that little spell has just made me uh, hate Manly all over again. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I've got to thank you for 08 for, uh, you know, erasing the, the scars of 75. But but I, I do think, d- despite, you know, what I've said, rugby league's more fun when Manly are good. So I do kind of sincerely hope you guys can uh, can turn this around and, and that, the, you know, the last three weeks are a sign of things to come. Uh, but beyond all that, I, I want to thank you so much for joining me uh, for this episode. That I, I think I learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners did too. So, so thank you so much, Rod. Well, I say thank you to you, Michael. What you are doing with the whole podcast series about Super League, it's what should be done, and I'm glad that you're doing it because you take the time to do it. But hopefully it's going to inspire you know, someone at uh, Fox League to, to do something of their own about Super League and do it properly. But I love the podcast. You know I do. And uh, so many other people do. So thank you so much for everything you've been doing. And I, I honestly can't wait to see how it ends. Oh, appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Rod. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.